Fun Belt Podcast. Fun Belt Podcast. Fun Belt Podcast. Fun Belt Podcast. It's just a, a great conference that is at a at a point right now where they're I think clearly the best group of five conference in the country. The state of Sun Belt football is the strongest in our history, uh, and we got to continue to showcase uh, what our league is about. This league is insane. Yeah, it might be like one of those eighth wonders of the world. <laughs> and you can see just what a great group of five conference it really is. It, it's a big deal. Boy, life is looking pretty good in the Sun Belt these days. Very excited about the Sun Belt. We started the Sun Belt uh, back in '76, and I'm I'm very proud of what has transpired through the years. You know, while other conferences have been breaking up, our conference has become stronger. Edit that out, Dusty. Welcome back to the Fun Belt Podcast. This is Jeremy Harper from HowRazor.com. With me, as always, Dusty Thibodeau from the Warhawk Report. Dusty, how the hell are you? Still living above ground. I think that's better than uh, most of those over in the cemetery can say. No, Dusty. I, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for this, this sort of macabre, morose, middle-aged man assessment of his life. You... Came away, your Warhawks came away with a big win this weekend. And you should be happy. You, your life should be reaffirmed. I mean, it was a great win that the Warhawks went up to Arlington and beat what is arguably the hottest team in yeah. the conference. I wouldn't necessarily say the best team, but definitely the hottest team. And did it with seven players and two yeah. coaches. And, so, and you had seven players for a while too, right? It, it, it's fluctuated between seven and nine. I think uh, someone corrected me on on the Warhawk Report message board that we had eight players. And so, you know, somewhere in that number was what the the Warhawks actually had and still came away and won it in overtime, which you would think if you have such a short roster, a short bench, that you're going to be fatigued and overtime is going to be the last thing that you have. And if it is overtime, it's just going to be a complete slaughter in that extra frame. Warhawks were able to pull it off. Now, just for reference, I believe Arkansas State, I could be wrong about this, but I believe we have like 15 players on the roster. So not to have a, to only have about seven or eight guys, that's an incredible endurance feat to play a basketball game and then take it into overtime. When Arkansas State played the Warhawks, I could tell that the Warhawks were shorthanded because at the end of the game, that the hot-handed Warhawks were no longer on. They were cold and tired, and Arkansas State just had extra players and were able to overcome. To beat UTA at, at Arlington, that's, that's a pretty nice feat. And you know what that tells me? That the Warhawks need to play every game on the road? No. Oh. What it tells me is that every single Sunbelt program has a shot at winning the Sunbelt title, except maybe University of Arkansas at Warhawk. 
and Georgia State apparently because Georgia State's sitting at the bottom of the standings at 0-2. Oh my God! What is going on with you? Know who got off the snide? Texas State got off the snide. Texas South State Bama. had a great weekend. Yep, South Bama got off the snide. Georgia State cannot get their COVID protocols worked out and cannot seem to get a win. What is going on with Georgia State? Uh, they got the Rona and, and and can't play. I mean, COVID picked up some some easy dubs this weekend. When the Little Rock and Arkansas State games were canceled, Georgia State Troy canceled, but Troy sitting at three and one atop the standings. Yeah, you know, I believe I could be wrong, but I believe Troy is sitting atop both the men's and women's standings. They are, and and the Troy Trojans on the women's basketball side actually took an L this week, Jeremy. What against who? Louisiana Lafayette. <laughs> Pretty well, much. It really came down to Troy just got into foul trouble and were unable to really get themselves out of it, and the Cajuns took full advantage of it, shooting 47% from the floor. Ooh. Defending Sunbelt Conference Defensive Player of the Year, Tyrona Doucette with a double-double, 23 points, 10 rebounds, and had six blocks. Man, that's Troy nice. had four players that fouled out of the game, and it was just a complete – mess of a defensive performance foul trouble will screw you up yeah if you don't have enough players just like covid if you don't have enough from foul trouble you're you're uh, limiting that bench as well but troy trojans still sitting atop the sunbelt conference standings at four and one louisiana lafayette arkansas state tied for second three and one ulm and georgia state still with the goose eggs ulm at zero and five the panthers at zero and three uh, Troy and the Cajuns doing pretty well. Arkansas State is doing pretty well. In fact, their new their interim coach is now our I will say it, our interim coach. I'll, I'll claim the Red Wolves are six and one under uh, Destiny Rogers, who has done a really good job of taking over that program from uh, from uh, uh, the former coach Matt Daniels. And uh, there's talk of her perhaps having that interim tag taken off and her being the permanent coach. And that's one of those, Dusty, I would like to ask you a question about interim coaches in general, whether it's football or women's basketball or softball or baseball or any sport. Now you get an interim coach and you don't know much about them. They're a popular assistant, right? Or a capable assistant. And they go out and they win a few games. The players really like them and they seem to be responding. And you in the front office you have kind of a dilemma do you, you go with the popular guy with the hot hand or do you say you know what there's a reason this person is was an assistant uh, that we never had had that person as head coach it'd be better if we went out and did our due diligence and found somebody outside of the organization for you as a fan what is it about interim coaches for you what, what's your policy on interim coaches you know it, it, it's I'm on the fence of it. I, I see both sides of the coin. A, you're, you're getting a chance to really have that person audition for the job and see what are they capable of. Can they handle the reins of the program? Do the players and the staff respect them and follow kind of their orders, their vision of the program, even for that short-term one year? But then the other thing is the guy you just got rid of, this is probably one of his cronies that runs the same type of offense, defense, system, whatever. Yeah. You want the proverbial four more years of 
what you just had. Because if you do, why did you get rid of that guy and have to spend the resources in order to get to have that interim head coach? Yeah, I, 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 to me, it's a little bit like the situation with the Cajuns, right? You got uh, DiGiorno. Close enough. Am I close? All no. Right. <laughs> I'm just DiGiorno? DiZormo? Okay, DiZormo. Okay, I'm getting – it's that Z that, that tricks me up. So, which is a Z, right? There's not a Z in his name, right? It's, it's, it's full of X's and other constants. Like Thibodeau, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Thibodeau. Anyway, but with him, I mean, he comes in, he's a popular assistant, right? A guy that the players like, the fans like, the boosters like. And then all of a sudden, all the star players seem to be leaving Louisiana Cajuns. And some of them are going to Florida and following uh, Napier. Some aren't going to Florida following Napier. Some are going to other programs. And you wonder, is it because it would would have been better for the Cajuns to use their sort of uh, their standing, their their high profileness, and used it to bring in a high profile coach, somebody that can bring in more excitement? I think regardless who their coach is, let's be honest, every kid wants to play. If you're in Louisiana, like these, a lot of these kids are that left. They want to play at LSU without a doubt. There have been a handful that have left Louisiana Lafayette and gone to the Tigers. But at the end of the day, SEC is the SEC. So these kids having that backdoor opportunity to, to get themselves into the SEC by following Napier to Florida, good for them and, and leveraging. Maybe they were SEC caliber all along and they were just overlooked in the recruiting because they were at a small high school uh, academics or whatever, but they've kind of proven themselves now in Lafayette and now they get a chance to go to Gainesville. I have no problem with it. Yeah. Well, I, all right. I don't have a problem with that at all, but I do wonder if you missed, if the Cajuns missed an opportunity to bring in some real juice to the program instead of hiring, like maybe it was a sensible hire to hire DeJorna, Des, Dejan. Maybe it was a, Coach D, maybe it was good sense to hire Coach D, you know, with, with, the, with the knowledge he has of the program. I love to hire. I mean, you're hiring one of your own. You're hiring a guy, while his number's not retired, he is definitely one of the legends of the Sun Belt, as uh-huh. we talk about. Um, he is one of the legends of Louisiana Lafayette that broke several of the passing records and have since been replaced by Levi Lewis but he was a legit player. He gets the X's and O's. Otherwise he would not have been in this position having been a top assistant from Billy Napier and then given the reins of the program, knowing that this is a, a program that's coming off of 13 wins and 13 straight wins that he was a part of. I, th- I think that you could not have gotten a better candidate to come in. And, and if you take a step back and look at the conference, Mm-hmm. Will Lim hired probably one of the greatest lineages of college coach ever with sure. a bout. Yeah. But if you ask the bulk of the players, they couldn't tell you who Terry Bowden is. Yeah. Other than he's the head coach of ULM. Maybe he was the head coach of Akron. So I don't think that the big name coach is really going to be the shock and all, unless you're hiring a Nick Saban, unless you're hiring Ed Orgeron, uh, Sharkeesian, however Uh you say his name. Uh 
I think Clay Helton has a little bit of uh, name there at Georgia Southern. But for the most part, I think a lot of these kids are not going to know who the coaches are that, that they're going to be playing for. They're playing for the opportunity or for that school. That could be absolutely true. And you know what? I, I say that without real knowledge. I don't know how savvy kids are about coaches. As far as I know, they got their fingers on the pulse of all of that. They're like, oh, yeah, I know who the offensive coordinator of Arizona State is. Oh, that guy's great. Or, or I don't know if they have that, that sort of inside ability. Or do they just go, yeah, I just want to play for Alabama. But you're probably right. I, that probably was the best hire that you could possibly make simply because he, he, he does know the system and that system has been really good. Now, I guess we'll see if he's also good at recruiting and if he's also good at putting an offseason program together and all these things actually makes coaching work. But uh, but yes, I were, but where were we? We weren't even talking about football. Oh, we we're talking about interim coaches. And then we we're talking about Destiny Rogers who is interim coach of Arkansas State women's program. Six and one, good start. She's in second, uh, the team's in second place in the Sun Belt. Uh, under Matt Daniels, the team just hasn't ever really found much success but under Destiny. There seems to be at least a, a sliver, a burst, an intense burst of success. So that's what we're wrestling with right now in Jonesboro. Do we make this interim coach who has had this burst of success do we say this is the coach of our future or do we, we just sort of step back and go, let's, let's look around and see who's available and what can we bring? I think the other question that always has to be asked is, does it really move the needle? And, and by that, if you go out and hire someone else, is it going to increase your booster contributions to the program? Is it really going to help you go over the top and, and become a final four team? Uh, for the NCAA tournament? Are you finally going to get a regional, anything like that? Yeah, here's the thing with Arkansas State basketball, and probably with most Sunbelt basketball, you're not going to get a big-name coach to come uh, coach women's basketball. So if you can come up with somebody who actually has spread goodwill with the team, who happens to be Destiny Rogers at this moment, why not give her that shot? Why not go ahead and do that? But um, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know within uh, women's basketball coaching circles, you know, what would be a, a needle moving higher? I don't know. I don't know yeah, and, and I mean, I, if you look at it, yeah, it made some noise, but Kim Mulkey moving even from Baylor over to LSU. Yeah. Didn't really move the needle it was kind of a head scratcher. Like you built this program. Why are you going to leave and abandon it for a, a, a team yeah. that's kind of struggled, but that success is probably going to follow you wherever you go. But why would you, you know, do that? So that's why I think even if something as big as that doesn't really move the needle, what will? Well, the only thing that ever moves the needle is, and it's the one thing that moves every single needle and that's winning. Right now, Destiny Rogers says that. So uh, right now, I, I really don't know who you would hire above Destiny Rogers. But let's think about the men's side for a second. Let's, let's hop aboard the men for just a minute and talk a little bit about what we've seen these, was it the first three weeks of Sunbelt Conference play? Three weeks. All right, you've made a good point. COVID has gotten a lot of Ws. In fact, I, I feel like the Sunbelt, is getting hit harder by COVID recently than most conferences. I don't know why. I don't know why that is. 
but it seems it, it seems to me like, for instance, our our our, our uh, sibling conference, the SEC, <laughs> doesn't seem to be canceling games, but but the SBC seems to be canceling games left and right. What do you think that? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I I don't know why that is. I mean, we're all kind of in the same geographic footprint. All seem to be following similar protocols. Is Atlanta that fun of a town that you can't? <laughs> <laughs> just stay out of the club or or stay away from one another to ensure that you're able to start playing some basketball. I, I really don't know why that is. Um, I've seen a handful of games canceled in other conferences, but definitely nothing like what we've seen in the Sun Belt. And, and it kind of makes me wonder, I, I haven't broken out the calculator to crunch it. Is this maybe a way to beat the, the rankings so that you can get a better seed? because you don't play or you're only trying to hit that 80% threshold so that you get a better seed. All right. So here's something that was brought to my attention about that 80% threshold. Uh, and, and maybe you've already factored that into that comment you just made. I'm, I'm not sure, Dusty, but it's 80% of the average games played. So it's not just eight, like, for instance, if we have 18 games scheduled, it's not 18, it's not 80% of those 18 conference games. It's 80% of what the league was able to play. So the league might only have an average of 16 games, right? So then you have to play an average of the 16 games. But look who's taking advantage of it. It's the healthy teams, right? It's Troy, it's UTA, it's Arkansas State when they can get an opponent that can play. Uh and uh, and ULM, which <laughs> seems to be limping along at the minimum amount of players it can put out and still putting up some Ws. I haven't really given much thought to Appalachian State basketball, even though they, they've come in as the, as the returning champions. And when, by say returning champions, I mean they got hot at the right time and won the Sun Belt tournament. But they've been playing some pretty good basketball. Am I totally ignoring the Appalachian State Mountaineers at my own peril, Dusty Thibodeau? They've definitely flown under the radar. And, and they didn't do anything this weekend too, too impressive. They did get a sweep of the weekend games. But did nothing really just over-the-top impressive, but sitting at 4-2. and two. Yeah. Now, that was with two wins over Coastal, right? They went to Coastal, then Coastal went to them, right? It's one of those North Carolina type things. Yes. Okay. So at Coastal, we still don't understand really if they're very good or not, right? They've got that one. They've got one of the better players in the Sun Belt. Uh, they've got that, that celebrated coach, but even but a lot of people left there. They they had a good win against South Carolina. But do we know if Coastal Carolina is going to be one of the top tier? So what? Why don't we even say that, Dusty? Every, you know what? Every school in the Sun Belt is a top tier basketball team right now. No, I would, say, I would say the line is drawn at Louisiana Lafayette at three and two. So that includes Troy, Arkansas State, Texas State, App State, UTA, Louisiana Lafayette. That's your top echelon of teams. Okay, all right, that's fair. And everyone, and then there's everyone else. And, and what's troubling about that is you have South Alabama that when they're healthy is hands down the best team in the league. I know they don't seem to be healthy. I, in fact, I think they have one guy that's still not getting on the floor. So I, I, yeah, I, I feel like 
we just haven't seen Sunbelt basketball at its fullest yet. And no, we've seen COVID ball. <laughs> we've seen a lot of COVID ball. And that's why I hate to say this. I, that's why I don't believe in Troy. I don't feel like Troy at the end of this process is going to be in that top echelon. I feel like Troy will eventually start settling down to the bottom. Now, could I be wrong about Scott Cross and his boys? Absolutely, because I know nothing about the Sun Belt, and Sun Belt entropy is real. I'm a buyer of Troy. I, I, I believe the hype. I like them. I still think Texas State can sneak in there at two and one right now. But the, it, at the end of the day, it's, it's all about healthy. And usually we're talking about injuries, you know, sprained ankles, twisted knees, whatever. It's health right now of COVID. Who can get their team the healthiest to make a push down the stretch? Right. Arkansas State's North Chad O'Meara and Louisiana Lafayette's Jordan Brown. Name to the Lou Henson Award watch list. I had to look that up. I didn't know what that was, quite honestly. But that is the nation's top mid-major player. The award is announced April 1st in New Orleans this year for as part of the NCAA Final Four. I think both those guys would have a legit shot if it were not for the Gonzagas and the other non-mid-majors that are lumped in as mid-majors. All right, so let me, let me wax hyperbolic. hyperbolic. Let me wax hyperbolic about Norchad O'Meara. That guy really is a legit superstar player. Now, he's only played basketball for a few years, and sometimes you can see his rough edges. But he really is some – I mean, he's the three-time Sunbelt player of the week. And he's deserved it every time. The guy can rebound. The guy can make mid-level shots. He can dunk like crazy. To me, he is the real deal in that whatever, – whatever, who's ever on that short list. Nor Chad O'Meer belongs. Now, Jordan, Jordan, what's his last name? Jordan. Um, Jordan Brown. Yeah, Jordan Brown. We didn't get to see him. Uh, I didn't get to see him when they played Arkansas State, which was too bad. He was out for the game. I really wanted to see him. I don't know if he's up to that level of Nor Chad O'Meer. But Nor Chad O'Meer to me is just a superstar in the making, a superstar player uh, that I, I think he needs one more year. There are people like, oh, well, he should jump to the NBA. No, he shouldn't be jumping. Nobody, nobody from the Sun Belt needs to ever be jumping to the NBA. But he really does have some outstanding next-level skills. So, yes, I may be a little bit of a homer talking about Norchad O'Meara as a Red Wolves fan, but he's probably the most exciting player I've seen come to Jonesboro ever. I saw Jordan Brown – Grant you that was in person when they played at Houston. Great player. I think he was just overmatched in that game. So I could definitely see, though, why he is on this list as he's continuing to dominate Sunbelt Conference and a, a true dominant player there in kind of his realm of being in the mid-majors. Now, am I, if, get me, don't, correct me if I'm wrong, he's a 6'11 forward, right? Yes. Yeah, that is some good size. And I was actually pleased not to see him for the Arkansas State uh, played Louisiana because I believe they have another 6'11 guy too and that's just two 6'11 guys I'd rather not play but so you felt like he was a little overmatched in Houston he was overmatched or the team was overmatched yes all of the above okay all right but Jeremy we've talked in the past uh-huh. as part of our Sunbelt legends yeah two different guys 
Yeah. Guy that we got to catch up with earlier in the week. Your guy from Arkansas State, Mm -hmm. Leo Lemon. Yeah, we interviewed him a little earlier in the in the in the week. Yeah. We did. And he had some great things to say about kind of playing in the days just before the Sunbelt Conference. The Sunbelt and the past and, and some of the great players that have come through it. And then and then even times before the Sunbelt, when when our programs were like were independents or from the Big West or from the Southland. And it seemed like we had all these guys that have have, have, have sort of constructed the Sun Belt from beyond the Sun Belt. Like, so Sun Belt's like one of those conferences that, that it's still sort of oozing out of the magma and still hardening into what's going to become, into to becoming a great football conference. Yeah, join, I mean, we, me. <laughs> join, join me in that experience. Tell me if I'm right about that. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about really the formation of the Sun Belt Conference was the band of misfits. We, we were all newly jumped up from one double a ranks literally coast to coast when you had idaho new mexico state in there you had uh middle tennessee on on the eastern boundary side it it, it was not a, a a pretty thing but it was something that laid the foundation for where we are now and i think that that's really what we're trying to strive for and show fans of the sunbelt conference it took a lot of these guys kind of putting it on the line to get the Sunbelt members up to speed so that we can be where we are now as the premier G5 league. Thibodeau, you're raising your rating truth right now. I've got Cleo Lemon, Arkansas State legend, record-setting quarterback for Arkansas State, waiting for us. Shall we bring him in? Bring him on. <laughs> Cleo, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great, guys. Thank you for having me, man. Excited to be here. Cleo Levin, you know, okay. So you 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 came aboard Arkansas State at a time when I was leaving. I left Arkansas State in the summer of 97. You showed up in the fall of 97, had four great years at Arkansas State, except those weren't the four best years of football at Arkansas State. In fact, those were some Joe Hollis years that were really tough. In fact, I think in your time at quarterback, you set some quarterback records that still stand today. And yet, I think the Arkansas State had maybe 11 wins in that four team, uh, four uh, game span or four year span. I'm sorry. How was it in those times, those formative times of Arkansas State? How were those years for you? Oh, it, it was a fun time. You know, we, we enjoyed it as far as my recruiting class, you know, being um, Joe Hollis's first recruiting class and and some of the coaches that were on that staff, um, you know, it, it was it was a joy to be able to be around those guys and learn from them. Uh, but, you know, we jailed as a team. We had a lot of fun. Um, not much success, um, but, you know, being an independent, you know, my freshman and sophomore year, um, doing a lot of traveling um, across the country, um, you know, after joining the Big West, you know, we were the, the team that was farthest east, and we would have to go west for all our road games, a lot of long flights, a lot of long nights, um, you know, but it, it was challenging. But at the same time, um, you know, I think we, um, you know, we laid down a foundation, and hopefully it's something that, you know, that kind of carried the program moving forward. So by the time that you left Arkansas State at two, in 2000, uh, 2000, 
you had, I think at the time, the most throwing touchdowns. But something that I, I found incredible about your career is that you ended up with something like negative 460 yards rushing. That tells me you didn't do a lot of running, Cleo. No, we didn't do a lot of running. Um, when I was with uh, Coach Hollis, you know, he brought in the Ohio State Power Eye. Um, so, you know, that was something he had run with Eddie George and Orlando Pace and, you know, a lot of um, Big Ten players that, you know, he wanted to execute. So our offense was we were ground and pound, man, and with a little bit of play action. Uh, mixed in. So for me, we were running pretty much a pro style offense. So for um, today's, you know, football and the way they play it now, uh, wide open, you know, 40, 50 attempts, passing attempts a game and, and um, you know, the zone read and a lot of the stuff that offenses are doing now, uh, we weren't doing that back then. Um, you know, we had a, a lot of good running backs. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have, um, um, you know, the Lodi Flash and Jonathan Adams, who was at the time mm -hmm. was one of the um, premier um, recruits um, coming out of the state of Arkansas. He was highly rated and, you know, we was fortunate enough to have uh, Big J.A. Um, but, you know, um, just was part of it, man. You know, took a, it took our lumps and, you know, we, we kept fighting and, you know, we showed up every Saturday ready to play. Was there a particular opponent that you recall more than others that uh, you saw in those four years that you were like, oh, this is these are the guys that we got to beat? Not really. Uh, we didn't have a, you know, a real rival. Um, we played Memphis, um, you know, but not, not man, we, we didn't have a real rival. Uh, we didn't have, um, you know, uh, much other than just us going out competing. And, you know, we just had us really. Um, so, you know, in that era, it, it was it was fun, but at the same time, like I said, we had we had a lot of challenges. Favorite game you played? Favorite game at Arkansas State? Uh, I had some fun ones. Um, had some close calls. Um, the NC State game, I can remember my senior year. Um, unfortunately, we lost it in overtime. Minnesota, um, up in the dome, you know. Unfortunately, we lost, I, I, I want to say, by a field goal. We took them to the wire, um, had a lot of opportunities there. Um, but I would say I always enjoyed going back uh, to the state of Mississippi where I was from and to play Ole Miss. Yeah. So I would probably say my – it was either my sophomore year or my junior year um, playing Ole Miss um, in Oxford and me and Kilo pretty much putting on a show. Um, Robert Kilo was amazing. Um, he made a lot of big plays that night, and and that was a lot of fun, man. We 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 had a lot of fun that night. Yeah, I remember. I recall those four years that you were there, and yeah, as an Arkansas State fan, it was hard for me because the wins weren't coming, of course. But the play of Cleo Lemon was the thing that kept everybody afloat. Uh, the touchdowns, the yards, it was just great. So then, after your career at Arkansas State. You, you weren't drafted, but then later somehow you got a free agent uh, contract with Green Bay. How did that happen? Um, well, I was invited to the combine. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be able to compete, you know, with a lot of the draft eligible guys. And um, 
that was that was a great experience. You know, that was the Michael Vick draft, um, the Danian Tomlinson. Um, those guys were, you know, were the the key marquee names of that draft. But um, just being that draft class with you know guys like Chris Winkie and uh, Quincy Carter, Drew Brees. Um, the list goes on. I, I remember, I want to say Marcus Tuiasosopo, um, Tim Hasselback, because a lot of these guys at the time um, I was meeting for the first time, but it was something that just kept reoccurring. I just kept running into these guys as my career progressed, competing against them, um, playing in games, um, you know, being on the same team with them, uh, playing NFL Europe. So it was just something that started my career off and just being with these guys and just kind of getting to know them and then me becoming part of that, you know, that fraternity in the NFL and just seeing these guys over and over and, you know, and, and really becoming friends with these guys and colleagues and, and, and just doing some, some really cool things with them. You know, I was talking to Dusty this morning and we're talking kind of prepping a little bit for this talk with, with uh, Cleo Lemon and, and we're trying to think back about programs that are in the Sun Belt now, programs that are in the Sun Belt in the past that aren't there anymore. But which of these programs have managed to put quarterbacks into the NFL? And who did we come up with, Dusty, besides Cleo? The Warhawks, baby. No, no, the guy from FAU. Oh, uh, Rusty Smith. Yeah, that was the only guy we could think of. And we're thinking, is there anybody else that has had that kind of success? And you were a journeyman for a long time, a guy who was a backup. You backed up a lot of guys. And then 2007 happened, and you had some starting gigs with uh, the Miami Dolphins. How was that reign? How was that that time at that moment? Did you really did you feel like you had finally made it, that, that all the, the preparation and all the, the hard work had finally paid off? Or was it just like, oh, man, it's just another day at the office? Uh, you know, you put in a lot of work. Um, you know, you want to see it pay off. And I would say uh, for, the fo- for the most part, it was exciting, you know, just to be able to, to say um, that you're a starting quarterback in the NFL. Um, that was amazing. Um, and when you get a chance to compete and then you earn the trust of your teammates and, you know, the coaches in the front office, you know, because you're, you're evaluated every day. Right. So every day, um, you know, you're, you're trying to make the team, you're trying to make the throws and, you know, you're in a position where you have to perform. And when when it happens in some kind of way, year after year, you're able to, you know, make a team and make another team. And all of a sudden you look around, you've been in the league four or five years. And, and then all of a sudden you get a chance to get out there, man, it's, it's it's really exciting, man, just to see that hard work pay off. You talk about the journeyman that you had, the, the journeyman career you had throughout the NFL. What were those discussions like whenever y'all were approached saying, hey, guys, this is our last year in the Big West. We're going into this new conference, the Sun Belt. Was that something that they really pre- the, the coaching staff and the administration really presented to y'all? Or was it kind of just a blindside after y'all were out? No, the, I, I, I didn't have that conversation. Um like I said, I, my freshman and sophomore year, we were independent, and then we went into the Big West. So I left Arkansas State being a member of the Big West. So I never experienced the Sun Belt. I saw the Sun Belt form, you know, from afar. So for me, um, 
hearing the news of this conference that's being started, first of all, it was a regional conference. So for us, when we played at Arkansas State, us as players never understood why we were in the Big West in the first place. Like, we never understood that, right? Why are we traveling to Idaho and New Mexico? And There's some neat programs in there. <laughs> That's a great program. Yeah. Why are we always taking these five and six hour flights going out west when all these schools is just right here in our backyard that the Sun Belt obviously formed? So then it's regional. So now these guys are playing teams in Louisiana, Texas, you know, teams right there that's in their proximity, which made sense being a student athlete. You know, why would you send these kids out playing all these games in all these different time zones? And then you have to get back, take these long flights, late night flights, getting back to Arkansas State, you know, four or five in the morning. And now now you got to get ready and prepared to go to class. You know, it's just, for us, it was tough, man. And, and it was something we, we didn't understand, but it was fun. So yeah. we enjoyed it, and um, you know it, it was it was a, it was a fun time in our career. You know, you're talking about the combine. You're listing off all these these sort of superstar names that ended up becoming legends in the NFL, but there were also legends in the college game too. You were Cleo Lemon from Arkansas State coming into the combine. Was there a little bit of uh, having to make introductions to those type of guys? I mean, it's like, well, where are you from, Arkansas State? Because Arkansas State at the time. Had only been a, I guess what you'd call, I don't know what what was called back at that time, but this was only an FBS program for a handful of years at that time. Yeah, it was a, a, a you know, back then it was one double um, So being a one double program and then transitioning to the Division One program, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I had been at that level for a while before I, you know, um, walked on campus. But at the same time you know, um, just trying to get some traction, um, trying to have, um, you know, some type of uh, regular routine with, you know, playing games. And, you know, like I said, rivalries, you know, we it, it didn't really exist for us. So, you know, each, each and every year, it was a totally new schedule, you know. So I think that was probably the most exciting part was when they did release the next season schedule, just to see who was on our uh, schedule. You know, I, I can remember playing the University of Miami. I can remember playing Oklahoma the year they won the national championship. I can remember playing um, Illinois. I can remember playing Minnesota, Ole Miss. You know, the guaranteed games go on and on, right? We played mm-hmm. a lot of guaranteed games. So, <laughs> but when you got the schedule and you saw those four or five programs yeah. on there, you know, it was exciting. And they used it as a recruiting tool to get to get guys to commit to us. So that was part of it. You know, you get to come to Arkansas State. You know, you get to play Memphis and Ole Miss and, you know, teams out of the Big 12 and SEC and, you know, the ACC. So Big East back then um, was, was relevant as well. So, you know, it, it was exciting to be a part of that. So, uh, you know, I kind of made a little bit of, of a dig because you have negative 445 uh, rushing yards as a collegiate runner. But in 2007, you had over 100 yards rushing as an NFL runner. So uh, let, let's, let's not let it be said that Cleo uh, Lemon was not, it could not be a running quarterback. Do you have wheels? Did you have wheels? Yeah, man. Yeah, I can move. <laughs> um, you know, uh, basically, uh, that was part of it. Yeah. You know, you had to 
make sure, you know, just to be able to stay healthy and, and to be able to uh, get passes off, man. You had to be able to, to avoid defenders. So that was part of it. Um, but at the same time, like I said, the offenses were a lot different back then. And, and what you see now uh, with, with the game, man, it is taking that next step. Um, it, it's, it's exciting. Um, they score a lot of points. And, you know, when I was part of the, you know, coaching and, and being able to implement those type of um, offenses and then recruit those type of players to play those offenses, um, you know, I, I think I had a, a real knack for that. And I think I had, you know, a real sense of, you know, what type of offense that the players that fit the offense that we would run. I'm glad you mentioned coaching because after your NFL career, you, 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 you got into the game of coaching. You were at a Jacksonville State for a while. What was that like? What was that transition like going from player to coach? Uh, well, you know, I didn't know if I was going to coach. I'm a son of a coach, right? So um, I grew up in a household with my dad coaching and him being a mentor and, and, and a community leader, basically, and, and really being someone that was well-respected in my hometown. And, and he did, um, you know, and had an amazing coach career himself. And then to see that firsthand and to see how he was um, um, respected in the community and all the things that he accomplished um, with, you know, even guys I played with. He coached me, he was a basketball coach. I played for him in high school. So when I had the opportunity to coach high school football, um, I just fell in love with it. Um, you know, I coached here locally in Jacksonville at uh, First Coast, one of the premier high school programs in the area. And we were putting out, you know, 10 and 12 division one athletes every year uh, signing the power five schools. Um, so that was exciting. Um, I coached a, I coached one of my quarterbacks um, to the, the Mr. Photo um, of football. Um, so he had the, it was basically, basically the Heisman of high school football. Um, he set a lot of state records, you know, he threw for over 50 touchdowns in the biggest classification in the state of Florida. We won a lot of games um, and we were scoring a lot of points. And so I fell in love with that. So I just wanted to try my hand at the college level, coached at the junior college level, coached at the division two level, then was able to coach at Jacksonville State at the FCS level. So, you know, I had a chance to coach at a lot of different levels, um, had a chance to um, do coaching internships with the you know, Pittsburgh Steelers got a chance to reconnect with Mike Tomlin and, and, and all those guys that were there with us, Randy Finkner, um, Keith Butler, who were at Arkansas State the same yeah. time I was there. Had a chance to reconnect with Jason Garrett with the Cowboys, did an internship with them, and also connect with um, Sean Payton uh, with the New Orleans Saints. So I, I had my opportunities to coach at all different levels, and it was it was an amazing experience. Enjoyed it, and um, it's something I would cherish and carry on with me, um, the leadership and everything that I've learned from all those coaches I was able to be around. So what was more fun, quarterback Cleo Lemon or coach Cleo Lemon? I would say coach Cleo Lemon <laughs> was a lot more, uh, he, he had a lot more fun doing it. Um, <laughs> our meeting rooms were, were, were amazing as far as the camaraderie. Um, I was privileged enough to coach a lot of great kids and, and meet a lot of, of um, families that were really great families that really wanted their kids to get educations and, you know, just pushing them 
afford to get those college degrees, man, that, that was something that I lived for and um, just wanted to change the, you know, the whole trajectory of, of, of family. So um, it was important to me. I took it serious. I worked my tail off at it. And um, man, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Coach, I was wondering too, uh, with your dad being a head coach and you living under that atmosphere as a kid and then getting you know, recruited in college and then having your NFL career, and then it comes back full circle. Do you see, did you take away lessons from your father? And did you also say, well, these are, this is what I'm different from my dad when it comes to coaching. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think whenever you are raised in, you know, in the house with your, with your father, you know, you kind of take, especially my pops, he, he was, <laughs> Man, he, he, he was a, a real man's man, right? So for me to be able to follow in his footsteps, you know, I, I thought it was an honor for me to, to have that opportunity. So I learned a lot from him. So my coaching style, you know, originated from him. So, um, you know, the best coach I ever had was my pop. So I, I would tell anybody that, you know, he, he was, he, he's the reason, you know, who I am today. And, um, you know, being able to experience that and cherish that and, 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 and really wrote in his shadow, man. It, it was it was fun times. So do you ever, ha do you have any connection with Arkansas State anymore? Uh, do, do, do you ever reach, did they reach out to you? Do you reach out to them? Or is that sort of like, in the dis is that part of the past? No, um, actually when Blake was there, I interviewed with him twice, um, actually to, to be a coach at Arkansas State. Um, I interviewed with, with Blake twice and yeah. unfortunately I wasn't hired, you know, I wasn't the right guy for the job, but, um, you know, to have a chance to come back on campus, to see the campus, you know, I hadn't been back in a while and to just to see how the campus. It's changed. changed. <laughs> yeah, in, the, in the, in the city of Jonesboro, Jonesboro yeah. had changed, you know, I, I, man, it was a, a trip down memory lane when I was there for my interview and just to see everything, man, it, it was, it was cool, man. I really enjoyed to see it and to see how it had grown and to see the, the the upgrades at the stadium and the facilities and all of that, man. It, it was just it was it was it was good to see. Yeah, in some ways, you and I are you know we we kind of came around the same period of Arkansas State. Jonesboro's a real sleepy farmer's town uh, when we went to Arkansas State, and now it's become it's still a sleepy farmer's town, but it, it's also uh, a, a lot more fun. To, to be at, at Jonesboro. And I, I give that credit to, part, I partly give that credit to your generation of football players uh, bringing uh, a little more excitement to Jonesboro. And I really do appreciate that. Tibbs, do you have any questions for Cleo? No, I think you, you, you reminisced enough for both of us. I know. In fact, I felt like we could just sit down and have a beer and talk about how boring it was for a while in Jonesboro. I know that uh, probably like you, like me, you probably took a few visits to Memphis just to have a, a good time. But uh, oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I, you know, I had a lot of teammates that was from Memphis. I had family in Memphis. So, you know, I was always there, you know, kind of just hanging out and visiting family or, you know, going home with with the teammate. So, you know, it was always something to do over there. And so one question I do have for you there, Coach. You were an Indian at Arkansas State. Indians no more. You're now the Red Wolves. Are you a Red Wolf or are you still an Indian? Well, well just first and foremost, I think the rebranding of it, um, I think it, it was amazing. Um, I think it's been a real boost uh, for the university as a whole. Um, uh, just the way it looks, the way it pops, the the – 
the apparel, you know, that they have, um, it's attractive, you know, especially for, you know, incoming uh, high school prospects. Um, I think it's something that they pulled off seamlessly. I, I love the mascot, um, love the color, um, love the color scheme, the unis, the different colors that they wear, the Tuesday night, the Thursday night games that they play. Um, I think it's all cool, man. I think it's something that was necessary, and I think it's something that's really added to the excitement of the program. Do you still watch college football? I'm a football fan, man. Um, I'm going to watch the the national championship game tonight. You know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to play for Coach Saban when he was with the Dolphins. And, and oh, I didn't know that. That's right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay, yeah. Yeah, to see him actually leave us, go to the um, Crimson Tide and, and really, uh, you know, cement himself as probably, you know, the greatest college football coach in the history of, of the game, you know, to see that unfold, um, you know, I, I think that's exciting as well. What was your, your, your impression of Coach Saban as an NFL coach? I mean, he wasn't, he, he played, he coached the Browns for a while, coached the Dolphins for a while, didn't seem to have a whole lot of success, found all this success in college. How was he as an NFL coach? Great coach, great coach, uh, very detailed, very thorough. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was just, you know, he was just made for the college game. You know, I'm just going to be honest about it. Um, I think a lot of the things that he didn't like about the pro game benefited him in the college game. And I would say, first and foremost, is recruiting. You know, I think that was probably something that was frustrating for him. Was And I heard him say this in an interview. He basically said, you know, I like the college game because I can go and recruit, you know, 10, 12 first-round draft picks a year. You know, in the NFL, they only give you one first-round draft pick. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he wanted to go and recruit, you know, as many first-round prospects as he could coming out of high school. And as you see, he has an eye for talent. He's a, he's a, a, a talent evaluator. He's probably one of the best at seeing the, the right guys that fit his schemes. So um, to see that and to see him um, just – cement himself in that in that position. Um, it's been cool to see. Well, Cleo Lemon, we're not going to keep you from the national championship game. I know my own kids are downstairs waiting for me to come watch it too. Even though, even though I'm a citizen of the group of five, I'm a, a citizen of the Sun Belt. <laughs> it's, they're going to drag me down that game. I'm gonna <laughs> they got to drag you. To, they got to drag you to watch it, right? I got you. <laughs> so I'm going to have to keep it down on the download. My reputation. I don't want anybody knowing about it. I know Tibbs is like, ah, I'm not going to watch it, but I bet Thibodeau ends up watching a couple quarters too. You'll see. Not, not happening. <laughs> not happening. Not happening. You're not watching it. Not at all. Oh man. Oh, I, I, I am an Auburn guy first right and there. foremost, so I can care less about Bama. <laughs> and I'm a ULM guy, and we already got our wins over Bama from literally on the scoreboard, as well as when they were cheating and had to vacate the the, the losses that we had to take. So right. uh, I, I I have nothing else to prove in that game. I got you. I got you. Let's go. It should be. I just hope it's a good one. Put it like that. Yeah, well, we'll see about that, I guess. Cleo Lemon, thanks for joining us on the Fun Belt podcast and joining us on our Legends series. You are definitely a, 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 one of the top legends to ever play the game for a Sun Belt program, and we appreciate you taking the time. Man, absolutely, man. Thank you guys for having me, man. Continue doing what you're doing. Wish you guys much success. 
that was the interview with Cleo Lemon. I had forgotten also that he was at Miami the same time of Nick Saban. Nick Saban, and, yeah, he dropped that on us. Yeah. Yeah, we we completely forgot to really drill it. And I think we were both kind of in shock and awe that we were like, he was he Nick Saban, he he was the guy. He so, was probably the one that gave him the his six his six NFL starts. Yeah. Like he started six games in the NFL. Well, yeah, I mean, the Dolphins were pretty bad back then. And, and you know, I think Saban was definitely, they thought, was the guy to try to right the ship. But, man, that was just, it was huge. We did. We kind of let that slide. It kind of came at the end of the interview. And we just, and everybody wanted to go watch the football game except you. And, uh, and we just, we didn't do our due diligence. We didn't, we didn't sit him down and, and explain further what, a, what kind of coach, what kind of man Nick Saban was. Back in 2007, I guess. We didn't do our due diligence. We let it slide. But we get another chance because we have another Sunbelt Conference legend joining us. The guy from Middle Tennessee State. He was the first offensive player of the year of the young Sunbelt Conference in football. And that is quarterback Wes Counts. Welcome in, Wes. Joining us here on the Fudbelt Podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. So, Jeremy, I reached out to Wes, and I said, okay. Wes, we got to get you on our Sunbelt Conference Legends. And he goes, why? I was like, dude, you were the <laughs> first offensive player of the year. Middle Tennessee was, like, up there with North Texas of the juggernauts of the Sunbelt Conference, and this was the man leading it. And he goes, why? Come on, oh, man. Well, just to be fair, Wes, just to be fair, you know, those are hard times for the Red Wolves at that time. You know, it was you guys in North Texas – all the time, kicking everybody's asses. So uh, I've, I've kind of blocked out about maybe five or six years worth of Sunbelt game or Sunbelt seasons. And uh, uh, so don't blame me for that. Blame you. Blame you guys for being so damn good. Well, we, we really, really got going toward the end there, the ten, end of uh, 2000 and 2001. But uh, we did lose to Monroe one time, which uh, – was a black eye, but that's all right. You know, you live and learn. <laughs> it's really hard to recover from a loss against the Warhawks. That's for sure. It is, but y'all have, y'all have the, 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 I remember the, the fret houses, they had, you know, about 10 guys each in the end zone and they were kind of fun or maybe it was the sideline, but they, they were fun. At least they were into it. Might not have been a lot of them, but the guys that were there were into it. I can neither confirm nor deny if that would have been uh, me included in that. <laughs> So, Wes, we go back, though. When you went to Middle Tennessee, they were still 1AA and in the transition of becoming 1A. What was it like as you kind of made that jump from 1AA to 1A and then into the Sunbelt Conference? It was different uh, uh, because we were actually supposed to go 1A, I guess, in 99 and built a new stadium or added on to the stadium and everything. And uh, we had a pretty good team in 98 or last year at one double a, but I mean, we ended up with a five and five record, but our, our, I think our combined losses were like about 14 points or something. Uh, and two of those were to Illinois and UAB, which were one a at the time. Uh, so, um, it, it was different. And, you know, 99, when nobody was in the conference, we 99, 2000, those were learning curves big time. We had a new coaching staff, brought in a new offense, brought in new defense, brought in a whole new way of doing things, different JUCO guys and 
a different way of recruiting. So uh, there were some there were some hard times in '99 because they were trying to run all the one double A guys off and trying to make room for the new JUCO guys and the new recruits or one A talent. So it was a it was a tough transition. Did y'all know in '99 though that y'all were kind of playing for unofficially conference membership into this new Sunbelt Conference that was getting formed? No, no idea. Uh, and, and my dad was the, you know, the assistant athletic director. So, uh, I mean, I, if I would have known something, uh, it would have been great. But, <laughs> you know, those, those type of things were kept for me too. So, uh, yeah, I had no idea until it was kind of official uh, sometime in 2000. So you guys end up get at the, uh, uh, you get that Sunbell invite. You play that first non-conference game, and it was against Vanderbilt. Is that right? Yeah, oh one, we opened up at Vanderbilt. Yep. And you beat those clowns. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a uh, man. I tell you what, that was people still talk about that game because it was middle and Vanderbilt hadn't played each other since I believe it was fifty five at that point, uh, and apparently there was some controversy back then. And for some of the old people that were there, they, they knew all about it. Uh, you know, us moving up to 1A at the time, we didn't know any better. And we were starting to play pretty good at the end of 2000. So uh, we were feeling pretty good about ourselves. Vanderbilt, you know, it's only 30 minutes away. We all go out and hang out in, Vanderbilt, in Nashville on, on the weekends. So we started running into those guys. <laughs> there are Oklahoma drills. I didn't see all of it, but there was Oklahoma drills between Vanderbilt and Middle Tennessee guys on the sidewalk outside of bars. I mean, it, it was it was a crazy two months that summer. Yeah, you so but I, one reason I bring that up was because you know, the Sun Belt at that time a very fledgling league, a league that just started up, was really looking to make its bones in the Sun Belt, and then you get a, a team like Middle Tennessee who gets that big kind of high-profile in-state rivalry game or more like a chip-on-your-shoulder game with Vanderbilt. You come out and beat them. That was a nice feather in the cap for the Sun Belt. I, I imagine that Middle Tennessee came out of that uh, feeling pretty cocky. Uh, yeah, fan-wise. I mean, we, you know, the way uh, Coach McCullum and his staff, especially the offensive staff, kind of taught us, we were cocky. I mean, we, we, we were. I mean, they made us practice a certain way. Uh, I mean, you practiced uh, celebrating after every touchdown, even in practice. You know, they, they would make you. You had to run to the end zone and jump up and down like it was a big deal. Uh, but, I mean, we this is the way we practiced. I mean, we would have practices where balls didn't touch the ground uh, a, a whole practice. Uh, just the, they demanded so much out of us offensively. Uh, and that, that's a heck, that was a heck of a staff. So, you know, we were a little arrogant at times. And then at times, it, that's what got us against North Texas because we were 5-0 and and they were 0-5. Lee Corso's talking about us on college game day. Um, so everybody was feeling good about themselves. Then we stub our toe against North Texas and kind of kind of end the year there. Well, a lot of guys stubbed their toes against North Texas. I remember North Texas in that time just being a – just sort of a juggernaut. Of a program, but you guys beat them. You guys beat them. Monroe beat them the week before, I believe. Or yeah, before we went down there, ULM beat North Texas, and they wanted to fire Daryl Dickey right then and there, not bringing <laughs> back to Denton because they were like, "Dude, really? You just lost to that team." 
<laughs> See, I tell you, there's no recovery, no smooth recovery from getting beat by the Warhawks. I don't know why, how Nick Saban continues to coach because that loss to the Warhawks should have just destroyed his career. He, he should be, I don't know, maybe, maybe working in a car lot. Talk a little bit about that season. You know, you're, you're competing, completing 72% of the, the passes. Uh, it's an offensive juggernaut. Tell me a little bit about how that the team makeup. How how does a team complete seventy two passes in this day and age? Well, back then, uh, Larry Fedora was our offense coordinator, yeah. and Steve Bird was our uh, wide receiver coach. Well, he not no one, but he was there in ninety nine and two thousand, and uh, he had come from Tulane, where they had Sean King and all the Bowden. Uh, I guess the Tommy Bowden was the head coach down there and then they all went to Clemson and then he uh, Steve Bird came to Middle Tennessee so that offense was a spinoff of the Clemson offense or Tulane that then Clemson offense and we did things a lot different than they did and we just had some really good wide receivers we had some great running backs uh, we had you know not an all-star offensive line but they were some tough little dudes that, that would cut people. Joe Wickline did a heck of a job coaching them. I mean, we had – it was just an attitude. I mean, people in, in – nowadays they have, you know, plus and minus boards, you know, in the locker room and meeting rooms. Who, who did good? You know, it was plus or minus every play. But we had knockdowns. We counted knockdowns for every position. Everybody on the team had, had their name on the board. And how many knockdowns did you get? And it included quarterbacks and kickers and everybody. And I mean, that was a, that was a pride thing. You know, how many, how many guys can you knock down during a game? And that's just the way we were taught. And that's, you know, as much as it's a player's game, man, the, the coaches that we had in 99, 2000, 2001 were pretty doggone good in the way they, the way they had us going. I'm beginning to under, I'm beginning to understand why Middle Tennessee had so many rivalries within the Sun Belt. Yeah, we were borderline dirty. Yeah, <laughs> we sure were. Yeah. yeah, especially offensive line. I mean, those, those guys were, were – they were vicious. I mean, I remember I remember you guys uh, – maybe it was in 01 had – had a pretty good defensive lineman, Malvo, I believe. Yeah, Donald Malvo. It wasn't a bounty by any means, but there there was a goal to, to get him out of the game. And then uh, we had a backup uh, – a backup offensive tackle that got to come in, and I believe the first play he was in, Malvo—that was Malvo's last play because he cut him and and hurt his ankle or whatever it was. I mean, yeah, we were we were we were borderline dirty. Yeah, we we really were. Who knew that we were going to get this kind of information about the early days of the Sun Belt? There's That's something we always suspected, though. <laughs> There's probably a statue of limitations. We're good. Oh, yeah, yeah. You won't have the cops coming to your house anytime soon. So uh, that, that first Sunbelt Conference game was in, uh, in Monroe, ULM, Middle Tennessee. Was it any different kind of going into that game knowing that this is it? You know, this is what we've been playing for as a 1A independent, moving up from 1AA. We made it. We're in a conference. It's our first conference game. You know, it probably was, but that was the week after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So that – that probably kind of overshadowed the first game. I remember Monroe at the time didn't have a, a really great uh, jumbotron or, or TV in the end zone, but it, 
they tried to put some graphics up there. And I remember uh, the officials, for, they came and got the captains, and we, we had to stand on the side of the stadium while they played a, a, a video with some music uh, for 9-11. For and, I mean, so as, as much as it was the first conference game, it, it, was, uh, it was really the first game after 9-11. So that was a, a big thing, just to kind of get back to normal, get back to, you know, playing football again. So, West, tell me this. Your time in the Sun Belt was brief because you, you got in at the, at the very last year. But what were your – what did you feel like were your biggest competitors within the Sun Belt? Uh, you know, North Texas, uh, Lafayette. Um, I mean, I still call them Lafayette. I know I'll get in trouble for that, but uh, I mean the Lafayette. Lafayette was one of those teams that back then they always had players. I mean they had athletes all over the play. They, I mean, you had Peanut Tillman and uh, uh, was it Hilliard or the guy that played for Pittsburgh for a while. Um, mm -hmm. You know they had basically two first round draft picks in the secondary, and you know they always had guys. They just they didn't play together. You know, they were – it was like a bunch of loose cannons out there, uh, and they just – they never could get going in the right direction. So, I mean, Lafayette was always probably talent-wise the best. I would say Troy might have been in there as well. Um, but, again, they just – they couldn't all put it together, you know, consistently. So – and the one thing that – and people don't – people don't like hearing this, but because that was the first year of the conference and everybody had not been in the conference – and everybody was cheating back then. <laughs> there were players. I mean, there there were so many good players in that league back then because they were all drop downs from here uh -huh. to wherever and transferred in. And I mean, there's no way Troy. I mean, you guys been to Troy? There's no way they had had the players they had without cheating. I mean, they just there's no way. First, Troy, you know, that was Larry Blankeny at that time, right? Sun Belt legend Larry Blankeny. I'm sure he by himself could have gotten some of those big name stars. That <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was crazy. I mean, really, you think about the players Lafayette had, some of the players that North Texas had. We had some, we had some studs. Um, uh -huh. uh, so, I mean, there, there was, there had to be something going on because there, back then there was, why would you come to an independent? You know, and I know there was a lot of independence back then, but why would you come to some of those places? I'm sure there was some cherry course selection that you could take. Maybe some, uh, maybe some degree, easy degrees to be be had at Troy. I don't know. I'm not. I I, I have no idea. But but, but yeah. that said, though, Wes, you had a great running back there, Dewan Hicks. That was definitely always a head scratcher of how he wound up at Middle Tennessee and kind of slid through the cracks. How great of a player was he? He's a stud. He really was. Uh, and you know how he came to us. I, mean, I I don't really know. I know he's a, he's a homebody, and not being that far away from his home in Huntsville probably had a lot to do with it. Uh, but yeah, he's one of those guys that that you know he he was kind of taken care of. He didn't have to practice on Mondays and Tuesdays. He didn't practice about Wednesday. But you know it was fine because <laughs> on Saturday you didn't have to worry about. It. I mean, mm -hmm. he just—he was a machine, man. He—he he was good. We had—we had a good backup and and Richard Lee that played in the NFL for a few years, and then the, the third guy was Don Callaway, and he was just as good. He was just—he was a little bit smaller than both those guys. So, I mean, the the recruiting that 
the coaching staff put together and getting some of those guys uh, were were pretty doggone good. The fun the funny thing is is like as much as they wanted to get rid of mo- most of the one double A guys, quarterback was one double A kid. All the wide receivers were one double A guys, and I think three of the five offensive linemen were one double A guys. So really, offensively, it was mainly um, the running backs and a couple of linemen that were were really the one A era type players. Well, you mentioned a lot of great players. The player that won the Sun Belt Offensive Player of the Year was Wes Counts. What did you do after that season? Well, uh, you know, I tried to play arena for a little bit, um, uh, then then broke my leg, um, and then it was one of those deals where you think about it, you you work to get back, and then the reality is you're 25 and it's time to get a real job. <laughs> it's, <laughs> basically, that's that's what it boiled down to. It's time to move on and be a big person. Let me t- ask you a little bit about arena football. Is that as wild as it, it presents itself on TV? Yes, and it, it may be the some of the most fun football you can play. It really is. It's because uh, I mean it's basically an all star team. You know, we, the guys that are playing are are pretty doggone good. You're playing in a hallway. Yeah. Uh, and and from a quarterback standpoint, you're you're throwing it just about every play. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, and back then, I mean, the crowds were nuts. I mean, you, you can, you'd always play in front of eight to 10,000 people. I mean, it, people were into it back then. So, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. It, it really was probably the most fun type of football that I'd ever played. Now, did you break your leg in a game or was that like, a- I, I sure did against, against a running back, uh, a running back that I grew up watching at middle Tennessee was the defensive coordinator for the opposing team. And apparently uh-huh. he put a bounty out on me. No. Yeah. And then they, and they cashed it in on about the eighth play of the game. So good, good for them. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but getting Joe Theismann in that way is not the, uh, I don't know, the most celebrated way to end a career, but at least that you were able to move on and do something else. What are you doing these days now, Wes? Uh, I'm in construction, uh, you know, flipping houses or, or remodeling houses, stuff like that. Na- Nashville is kind of a, <laughs> a a residential hotbed. So uh, yeah, no kidding. You must be doing pretty well. Yeah, anybody in construction uh, is staying pretty busy right now. In addition to that, Wes, I believe you're uh, also involved still with Blue Raider football. Yeah, I do. Uh, I help out with uh, the radio broadcast uh, as the color guy. Uh, me and Chip Walters and, and Wayne Gross. You know, they've been doing it forever and got to a point where they were making some changes uh, about five or six years ago, people were moving on and, and I was going to the game, a lot of the games anyway. And, and they just kind of wrangled me in and it's uh, it's been fun. It's been a different way to look at games, you know, trying to describe things to the layman type of deal instead of talking football uh, jargon all the time, you know, try to try to break it down for, for normal people. So did you so, pay much attention to the whole conference realignment stuff and kind of where Middle Tennessee was at and the potential of them coming back to the Sun Belt? Well, I don't know how much potential there was because with the Sun Belt, just because none of the teams that left the Sun Belt that got invited back to the Sun Belt. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, and then it, it, was, it was pretty obvious that that was going to be the case from, from the get-go. So the MAC option, you know, with, with the, the package deal with Western Kentucky going to the MAC, I personally think that was – where they should have gone. Uh, 
I don't know how much Conference USA just seems to be in a, a bad spot, uh, and they've been in a bad spot, in my opinion, I, uh, for for a little bit. Um, so who knows? You know, uh, bringing up Jacksonville State and Sam Houston and whoever else they're they're bringing in just to try to stay a conference. I'm not sure how long that's going to uh, last. And then talking to other people that are at some of the bigger schools, I'm not sure how longer 1A football is going to last. I mean, it just some of the some of the rumors, you know, with the the Power Fives kind of splitting off and doing their own thing. Uh, from what it sounds like, it's closer than than what a lot of people thought. You know, it might happen in the next couple of years. So, uh, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, we definitely feel like we're coming full circle, and and we're all going to be pseudo one double A again, and then you know, all the the P fives will be the one A programs. It, it it's just kind of crazy that they were able to actually successfully get this whole separation that they want. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, but I mean, when you're talking the big boy conferences, the big 10, the SEC are going, are going to get 90, $90 million payouts. Um, I mean, the middles of the world and Monroe's of the world, they, they can't compete with that. I mean, especially now when you got NIL deals that are going on and, and I mean, that's what, the, that's where everybody's getting in the transfer portal right now. It is essentially free agency right now. It is who, who's going to pay me. I mean, I know, I know some people that are coaching other places. They've had kids say I'm going to the portal and the next day there's an NIL deal for them to stay. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, the Monroe's and, and middles of the world and, you know, Troy's of the world, they're not, they're not made for that. So it's, those guys need to go on and do their own thing. And then, and I really don't understand at our level, you know, what, what, why, why you keep trying to spend money to, to hang in one day, you know, just, I don't get it. I mean, cause you're, you're relying on so much student activity money, you know, that you're not raising enough money to, to stay at this level. There's nothing wrong with one double A. Monroe made a living at one double A for a while. Middle Tennessee did too. So I mean, there's nothing wrong with one double A. You know, we we probably had more fans in the stands when we were one double A. You know, people want to see wins. They don't necessarily want to see who you're playing. So, you know, if you're if you're nine and two in one double A, I think it's probably better off for your community than being five and seven, six and six in one A. So you mentioned NIL, Wes. If that was around back in your day, what would have been your NIL deal? What what would you have tried to uh, pursue? Because Murfreesboro was so different back then. It was only like 60,000 people. Now it's 160,000 people. So I don't know. There, there's a pretty good restaurant, Toots, in town. And that guy's always been a pretty good fan of uh, of the Blue Raiders. So maybe I could have gotten some some free <laughs> pictures and some free wings, you know, maybe. Uh, I, I have no idea. That, that That's a good question. Well, you need to start thinking about that because well, uh, it does me no good now. You know? <laughs> that's true. Oh, we can't retroactively get our NIL deals. That's, <laughs> that's the bad part. Wes, thanks for having me coming on to the show. Is there anything you want to plug while you're here? No, no, I don't, I don't need to plug anything. That'd be an NIL deal. So. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I'm good. I'm, <laughs> I appreciate you guys having me and thinking of me, man. It was a, it was a lot of fun back then. It was a, you know, it was just football back then. So well, it wasn't all the, the NILs and everything else. It was just a bunch of guys having a, having a good time playing football. Well, Wes, thank you for being a Sunbelt legend and a Sunbelt pioneer, really, and helping deliver one of those first big wins for the Sunbelt. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me.